0: Welcome to The Drabblecast, episode 127. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction audio podcast magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. So, here's some news for you. And for once, it's not about government trained assassin manatees breaking free from a South Florida naval base. Looks like I'll be a regular co-host for one of my favorite podcasts ever. The podcast that really inspired me to start this one. The Minnesota Northern Pike Game Fishing Podcast. Northern pike are also known as Essox lucius reticulatus, which is Mexican for water wolf, and it's always been my favorite game fish. Ask anybody. I judge how awesome a fish is by what you use to catch them. If the bait is lame, then the fish is lame, and you're lame for trying to catch them. Take grass carp, for example. (laughs) The name pretty much says it all, doesn't it? Grass carp. And if you don't have any grass handy, you know what else you can use, what carp really, really love? Bread. That's right, grass and bread. So of course, Pat Robertson catches carp. Leprechauns catch carp. The flu catches grass carp. Kobe Bryant, Bono, Tom Cruise, Kenneth Lay, Frosty the Snowman, Alex Rodriguez, Geraldo Rivera, Carlos Mencia, Kanye West, Lakers fans, Battlefield Earth, 1995 Ford Explorers, and your mom all very, very much like to take either dough or grass, whichever is convenient at the moment, and catch massive amounts of grass carp with it. Northern Pike, however, which can get up to 5 feet long and weigh 55 pounds, eat frogs, leeches, water voles, and ducks. That's right. Whole ducks. So get a duck and cast it on out there. Catch you a Northern Pike. That's what Evil Knievel, Godzilla, and Harriet Tubman do. Or did. Anyways, moving on. Another one of my favorite podcasts ever that has been a big inspiration to me also asked me to co-host on an official basis, and that's Escape Pod. This is truly an honor for me, way cooler than co-hosting Pipecast. Escape Pod was one of the first podcasts I ever listened to, back in the days of yesteryear, 2003, when I didn't know what a podcast was. It was the first one that locked me in and that I started looking forward to each week. And why? Well, because it's the best place to get science fiction on the whole entire interweb. I admire them very much, and I get giddy as a. And pardon the overused expression here, but it's just how I feel. The giddiness that I experience is similar to that of a little schoolgirl, just thinking about it. Especially as they're taking steps to hopefully run their business as a nonprofit in the future. It's exciting to be a part of the Escape Artists team, because they rock. And don't worry, kids. Daddy's not getting a new mommy. Daddy's just getting another mommy. And that's okay, because Daddy's a podcast polygamist. Mormon Norman. Where's my planet, biatch? Anyways, Drabble time. Drabbles are stories exactly 100 words. Send yours into Drabblecast at yahoo.com. This week's Drabble is called The Place Where Dogs Go When They Die by John Madai. John's previously had short stories published in Space Squid, Pseudopod, The Three-Lobed Burning Eye, Adam Jack, and Drabblecast. His Drabble Please Allow the Door to Close won Drabble of the Year at last year's People's Choice Drabblecast Awards. Check that one out at episode 89, paired with a really cool Samantha Henderson story. First, there's the stink. A yellow, brown wind blows the constant pong of decomposing cabbage, soil, dead raccoons, and the intoxicating undersides of all things which are so pleasant to the translucent schnauzers, vaporous dachshunds, and spectral spaniels who chase the woolly rhinoceri and cowardly thunder lizards through the long red grass of the hunting grounds. They grow in a great pack, mouths foaming ectoplasmically, their eyes shooting bright, fatal beams of love and hungriness. And then, there is me, in the wrong heaven entirely. I'm near the impossibly huge fence of that place, scared as hell, howling for mother. Well, our feature story this week is called Nanook, by John Kratman. John is a husband and the father of triplet girls. When he's not busy spending time with his family, he's a full-time techno-bureaucrat. John's fiction has appeared in Jim Bain's universe, and Aeon's speculative fiction, among other venues, including Escape Pod, where, coincidentally, I read his story there, too. Check out his website at johnkratman.com. So without further ado, Nanook, by John Kratman. Words of life and death are written on the ice. They are written in the track of Nanook, the great white bear. They are written in the blood of a ring seal upon the snow. Since ancient days, it has been the sacred duty of Inupiat fathers to teach their sons the meaning of those words. We could have just taken a flitter, you know. Arwela, obviously uncomfortable without the clothes of the white man, pulled at the throat of his caribou skin parka. Come on, son. Don't be that way. I looked up from the tracks of Nanook. This is important to me. Arwela's goggled eyes betrayed nothing, and he offered no answer. His years away from me had bled any belief he once had in the old ways. I had thought to educate him, to make him wise in the ways of science and the world. I thought after he graduated he would return and learn the ways of the Angatkuk, the shaman, and take his place in the secret circles of the people, as his mother had. But the university had narrowed his mind instead of widening it. He had turned his back on his people. Nanook came this way, I said pointing at the huge tracks in the snow. She walks on two legs. This is no ordinary bear we track. She is of the almost people, the woman in the skin of a bear. We should have taken a flitter. We should have at least taken a GPS. There were many things Arwela did not know. Had he returned, we would have shown him the secret science and magic of the Inupiat. He too would have walked the path of the shaman and experienced the bear dream. The tracks continued for thirty feet before the bear again walked on four legs. I shifted the weight of my pack and pressed on, not waiting to see if Arwela followed. The corgi, our lodge, and the conveniences of modern men lay three days behind us. Before us lay the tundra and the way of spear and skin, of blood and death. Mom's dead, Pop. Fifteen years now she's been gone. Why don't you admit it finally? He dropped his pack to the ice and sat cross-legged beside it. He pushed his long hair away from his face and frowned, revealing the lines and the wrinkles around his black eyes. I sat down and rummaged through my pack. My grandfather's pipe lay beneath our provisions, wrapped in the dried hide of a ring seal. Scratches and wear marked the places where his hand had held it long ago. Then why leave Los Angeles? Why leave your precious city to go grub in the dirt with me? I missed you. Arwela's hard face softened. You think I'm crazy. Men do not turn into bears, Pop, no matter how much you believe. I promise you, Arwela, you will see. We camped for the night in a tent made of caribou hide and slept in bags lined with the very fur of Nanook. How the hell are we going to bring down a polar bear, Pop? Arwela's eyes glinted in the darkness, his face hidden in the sleeping bag. You haven't got anything with you but that damn Trank Spear. It will be enough. You should have brought a stun rifle and a heater for God's sakes. I hoped he was wrong. A rifle would have been easier, but I couldn't change the situation now, three days from the lodge. Layak, my wife, would have wanted me to do it the old way. I had to believe that she would help us. After a time, I slept, the remembered smell of her hair inviting me to dream. Morning came, and the sun shone on us briefly, retreating behind ominous clouds that gathered around the mountains. Arwela said little as we ate the dried fish from our packs. We followed the tracks of Nanook in silence. Around midday, I saw a small fox cub scurry from a hole and chase after a pair of lemmings. High above us, a golden eagle flew in tight circles, perhaps weighing the immature fox against the smaller lemmings. Its piercing call mingled with the gathering wind. The message of the eagle and the fox was not lost on me. It was a dark omen sent by Tungwak, my helping spirit. The hunter sometimes becomes the hunted. But I would not abandon her now. Fifteen years she had roamed the ice, dreaming. No, I would find her, and Arwela would at last know the truth about his mother and the secret rites of the Inupiat. We followed her trail up an expanse of dark stone that stretched for about a kilometer. Tasting the wind and trusting my instinct, I set off eastward, my son trailing behind me. As the day progressed, the wind bit through my parka and the blue sky became a dark gray curtain. Ice formed here and there on the stones, the water from sun-melted snow, leaving tracks of invisible slipperiness for the unwary. Mind your footing, Harwela. It is too far to nurse a sprained ankle. Can't you give it a rest for a while? There was anger and fatigue in his voice, and something else that made me stop and look into his eyes. Why aren't you wearing your visor? You're almost snowblind. I pulled the visor over his eyes and sat him down on the rock. I pulled my seal-skin glove off and felt inside his parka. You're sweating. Sweat is deadly on the ice. I'm fine, just a little cold. There was no color in his face. The place in my heart that was the hunter merely shrugged. The place in my heart that was the father screamed for me to go back. In the end, I was spared for making a decision. It was the ice that decided. A blizzard fell upon us. The tent and furs we brought with us were little protection, and I resorted to using Arwela's lace knife to construct an igloo from the hard-packed snow. It took almost an hour. We would have been dead if he had left it at home, as I instructed. It would have taken far too long with the traditional knife I had brought along. I found a phone in his pack when I searched for the lace knife. I flipped it on, but the storm blanketed us in static. I piled furs on Arwela and held him close, as his mother and I had done when he was a boy. It seemed the heat from his face would melt the igloo around us. By morning, the entrance to the igloo was buried in snow. I put Arwela's phone in my pocket and dug myself out with my hands. I struggled to the surface, pushing snow behind me until my hand broke through to the light of day. I pulled my visor over my eyes and sat up, fumbling for the phone. My worry for Arwela betrayed me. I did not see Nanook until it was too late, but her smell gave her away. A fortunate change of the wind and I caught it, pungent and unmistakable. Clean snow and blood. As large as a snowbank, white. White, blinding in her brilliance, her eyes alive with cold intelligence, and her lips curled over her ivory teeth. About her neck was the intricate collar of sinew I had made for her myself so long ago. The tracking beacon that had hung from it was gone. I dropped the phone and dove straight back into the hole, knowing it would not protect us for long. Nanook would dig us out as surely as if we were seals. I slid into the igloo and collided with Arwela. He was still in the grip of his fever and did nothing but moan. My spear lay beside him and I snatched it up with trembling hands. I could hear the bear sniffing around above. She would wait there a moment to see if I would come out. Then she would come in after me. I started back up the hole on my belly, the spear before me. I thought there was a chance I could tranquilize her before she knocked my brains into the snow. About halfway up, she dug her claws through and raked my face to the bone. The smell of blood flooded the tunnel. My screaming spurred her forward and into the snow after me. I dropped the spear and raised my arm to protect my face. She hammered down on it with her paw, cracking the bones and knocking the wind from my lungs. Numbness raced up my arm and I rolled back into the igloo, struggling to breathe. Arwela stirred beside me, eyes glazed and uncomprehending. Blood poured from the wounds on my face and melted the hard-packed snow beneath me. He crawled towards me. Dad! I managed to get a small breath of air and pointed at the hole. The bear! He blinked his eyes up at the sunlit hole and struggled to his knees. He picked the spear up. Snow cascaded from the surface and I heard the huffing breath of Nanook. Her head broke through directly above me, covering me with snow. She looked at Arwela. huge nostrils dilated. She dug furiously with her forepaws and slid halfway in, filling the tiny igloo with her scent. Arwela screamed and sank the spear into her shoulder. He twisted it and thumbed the release button for the tranquilizer. Nanook let out a deafening roar and knocked Arwela down with her paw. His head struck the ice. I felt a great weight above me as the bear slid further into the igloo. Her head shook and I saw her legs tremble as the tranquilizer began to take effect. She sniffed at Arwela and bared her teeth above his exposed throat. Lyak, no! He's our child! He's Arweyla! I looked into her eyes, and I thought I saw some spark there, beneath the cold cunning of her predatory mind. She settled down on her forepaws and closed her eyes, the tranquilizer finally dragging her down to unconsciousness. I lay under her, unable to move. I slept in the embrace of Nanook. I awoke to the light of day, stretched out on the snow. Arwela was unconscious beside me, the spear frozen to his hand. He had dug me from beneath the bear and dragged me from the igloo before passing out. His phone lay near Nanook, and I used it to call the lodge. An hour later, a rescue flitter came for us and hoisted Arwela and the bear into its hold with harnesses. The hospital in the lodge soon had Arwela stable, though he lost a hand to frostbite. Regeneration can be painful, I hear, but in a few months he would be as good as new. My wounds were filled with flesh foam, and my broken arm was set in a cast. Some hours later, they brought me to the ceremony in a wheelchair. I insisted on standing after they rolled me into the gigantic room. It would not be right to sit like an old man when I had waited for this day so long. In the house of shamans, Nanook lay motionless, gripped by the medicine of the people. About her mighty head, they had arranged machinery and wire that looked like metallic flowers attached to gossamer strands of ice. The wires reached upward and outward, forming a massive spider's web that joined with the great machines that filled the room and lit with dancing light. No anthropologist or outside scientist knew of the Bear Dream, That holy road was for the shamans of the Inupiat alone. Beside Nanuk lay the sleeping form of Laak, my wife, her beauty unmarred from her years in cold sleep. She looked the same as the day she took the holy path. But we had lost her. What was supposed to be a one-year journey as a passenger in the mind of the white bear had turned into fifteen years of imprisonment. In the bear dream. The shamans and the scientists restored Lyak to her body. Nanook was released back to the Arctic snow, the stain of my wife's mind forever erased. How long? She asked me, tracing the lines of my face with a finger and brushing the tears from my eyes. She embraced me. Fifteen years. I found I could not release her. Too long. Arwela, she asked me. A true son of his people. My heart was filled with pride. He is waiting to see you, though I do not know if he will believe his eyes. that was our story. I like stories that tinker with the fine line between magic and technology. I'm not at all a very tech-savvy guy, so when someone starts explaining to me how something simple that I totally take for granted, like email, for example, works, I'm like, yeah, you know what, Uh, that's maybe how you do it, but for me, it's actually an ancient and sacred way of my people, and (laughs) you just wouldn't understand. Speaking of geeky tech-savviness, I was recently a guest on a freaking great little radio show based out of California called Geek Speak that's actually podcast out as well, so anyone listening to this right now can actually go to their website, geekspeak.org, and subscribe. It's a podcast, clearly for geeks, but it's oh so much more. Hey, Al. Nice jetpack. Thanks. It was only $80,000. Seems kind of pricey to me. I didn't know you were in a tech gadget. Well, I'm not the computer guru you are, but yeah, I like this stuff. But what have you got there, Lyle? It's my new robot dog. It climbs trees, navigates any city block, and can tell what people are feeling. Sort of. It's running FreeBSD, and I can control it using this Open Sound Control app on my iPhone, connected to it in Ruby on Rails application I wrote. Wow, cool. What kind of battery you got in there? Well, it's not a battery, it runs off of organic matter. We can talk about that later. You know, I think I heard something about that. Yeah, actually, I heard about that jetpack too. Do you listen Geek to Geekspeak? Yeah. yeah. Geekspeak bridging the gap between geeks and the rest of humanity, broadcasting on NPR member station KSP on the Central Coast of California every Saturday morning at ten, and also available, of course, in podcast format through iTunes, through NPR.org, or of course directly from Geekspeak.org. Al, are the back of your pants supposed to be all burned like that? What? Oh, yeah, I think this jetpack still has a few bugs. (laughs) It was as gloriously awkward an interview as you might expect from your dear friend Norman the Mormon. But really, if you're a fan of the Drabble News portion of our show, which I know many of you are, you really would like this podcast. These guys flesh out the details of corpse-fueled robots of war, whereas I just strongly and blindly advocate for them because someone on MTV told me to. Give a listen. You'll stay hooked. I guarantee. So story feedback, tis been a while. Back in episode 122, we ran a Tim Pratt story called The Fallen and The Muse of the Street, which was a big hit. I don't think there were any complaints. you Killing Time said, this DC episode makes my top five favorites. Wonderful story with a great, magic-realistic tone. I love the way the muse defeated her opponents by inspiring them brilliant story, an elegant counterpoint to the equally brilliant mutant sea turtle bit as an outro. Talia said, Between assorted podcasts, I've heard quite a few Tim Pratt stories to date. This is my favorite, hands down. It's got a colorful, playful, perhaps slightly surreal feel to it that is just purely enjoyable. And the ending was perfect. I'm curious if it eventually led to their redemption, for surely thereafter they would never be the same. And Devorah said, I can well imagine how excited the Drabblecast editors were to read the first line of this story. All right, we can finally use the cool vomit sound effects we have. Bingo. You know us too well, Devorah. Then the next week we ran a story called Toast by Jamie Lackey, which everyone, again, seemed to really dig. The Mighty Twix said, I enjoyed this story. It really made my day. Also, as a bread baker, it really hit home. I always try to develop gluten in my dough, but now... I will try for life. (laughs) Vegan Vampire said, I think this was my favorite story yet, until the toast killing scene. When Rick came in the door, I was already shouting in my mind at him that he better not dare hurt those toasts. So here's my angry letter to Rick. Dear Rick, why the heck would you even think of killing something as innocent and cute as walking pieces of toast? Did you think they posed some harm to you? Of course they didn't. Was it because they're different from you? That's it, isn't it? Well, Rick, just because something isn't human doesn't mean it can't feel, can't suffer, can't play Dance Dance Revolution. So it doesn't matter how many loaves of bread you send your ex-girlfriend. Nothing, nothing, Rick, can ever make up for what you did. <laughs> Ain't that the truth, eh, fellas? Ah, women. Yeah, I know I say this every episode, but it's just because I'm for real. Join our discussion forum community. It's one of the things I'm most proud of about this podcast. We have such funny, bizarre personalities in there, and so much fun stuff going on. And those folks are on top of it when it comes to finding Drabble news topics. If anything bizarre and unholy washes up on any beach, anywhere, you're bound to find it in the Drabblecast discussion forums first. Oh, and that leads me to our kick-ass donor of the week. (laughs) Longtime listener Jeff Copen, also known as Golden Rat, on the forums. Jeff is a commercial credit underwriter at a bank. He lives in central Minnesota with his wife, two sons, two dogs, two Northern Pike, and Cat. His hobbies include spending time with his family, golfing, playing basketball, reading sci-fi, and listening to podcasts. He says he's the family dog walker, and there's nothing quite like a two-mile winter hike in sub-zero weather with 200 pounds of dog while the Drabblecast melts the brain inside your frozen skull. Thanks, Jeff. I know how you feel. and glad that we could get the sizzle out of there for you. So Dragon Con is coming up in a few weeks, and all three Drabblecast editors will be there with a small entourage and a token hot chick. All day Saturday, September 5th, and up through lunch on Sunday. We'll be promoting Drabblecast, some, um, and taping video of Super Animal Deathmatch Season 3, going around and asking people like Kevin Sorbo and the hot chick from Heroes things like who would win in a fight between a radioactive, nuclear-powered lion versus an undead zombie unicorn. It'll be good times. If you're going to be around DragonCon, shoot us an email at drabblecast@yahoo.com at yahoo.com letting us know. We're giving away t-shirts to fans who find us, and may do a lunch or drink meetup if we get enough responses. The Twitfic winner this week is Fiverr first-time TwitFic winner, dethroning the formidable TwitFicker Wonko, with a great 100-character story that reminds me strongly of the most disturbing thing I've ever seen, caught on video. A link to that will be in our show notes. And Fiverr's 100-character story was just twat, for those of you who follow the Drabblecast on Twitter. Try writing a 100-character, not counting spaces, story yourself, and send it into drabblecast@yahoo.com or post it in the TwitFic section of our discussion forums. So that's our show. Remember to share us with friends, blog about us, or write us a review on iTunes, or wherever you pick up our show. If you have the means, consider donating even just a few dollars to help us pair our authors, license production music and sounds, etc. It ain't cheap, folks. You can find support options off of our main page, www.drabblecast.org. The Drabblecast is produced under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Node license, which means share us all you like, just don't change our show or sell it to some chump without asking us first. Special thanks to Mr. Tweedy for our show art this week. Our staff is made up of co-editors Kendall Marchman, Luke Coddington, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you that your mom's a polar bear. turns chairs upside down. Piano player picks up his tip jar and drink, and the bartender shouts last round. An hour ago this place was loaded. A noise filled the room like the smoke And laughter and curses spilled like booze from a glass Words were all slurred when spoke Yes, words were all slurred when spoke Hey there, this is Justin Bartha I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts With actors like Louis Black I'm torn by my feelings for two women Bobby Cannavale You can eat it